First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Father, you said it's the responsibility of your people, the church, to intercede on behalf of the government, for you promised to answer our prayer. You have given us a privilege that you have not given an unbelieving world, and for that we are so grateful and yet so responsible. We know that you desire peace in our culture for the express reason to be able to share the gospel. And so we pray for our nation that is ever-growing distant from you, a growing hostility towards things that we know are right and true. We pray for our president, for all those who are in our Congress, for our Supreme Court, for our new justice, that you would help them to do what is right and pleasing. I ask that you would just frustrate the plans of the godless. And that your name and your will might be expressed in this land. Father, in all of the turmoil of this last week, it seems to me like those officers have just been lost in the shuffle. But we thank you for the few dozen police officers in this church. You call them as well as your ministers to put down evil and to praise good. We pray for the family that lost the officer in Florence and the other six that have been wounded. And we just ask your mercy upon that city and on our own in our whole state and nation. Father, we need good people who will fill this responsibility. And yet we know as our culture turns from you that evil only grows. Now help us not to be fearful because you said these things must take place. We come and we have just sung how we can live in the midst of trials under the shadow of the cross. And thank you for the grand and glorious day that will come when our trials of this life will be forever over, where there will be no more pain, no more death, no more disease, no more goodbyes, in the forever place that you have destined for your people. Help us in the interim to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and to be faithful servants of his, that when we see Jesus and he evaluates our service for his local assembly, that he would be able to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. So we come with open hearts as we open your word. I pray that you would fill me and use me and anoint me and teach through me by the Spirit of God that the truth that is said before us would change our lives and cause us to reflect more fully the image and person of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Take the Word of God this morning, would you, and turn to Revelation chapter 15. Today's subject is about the bowls that are coming, 
as God begins his countdown clock culminating in the blast off at Armageddon that we will see in the next chapter. You say, Pastor, what kind of bowls are coming? The seven bowls of the wrath of God Almighty. Now, I know that's not a very pleasant message. I know that it does not, however, change the truthfulness of what God has revealed in his word. Certainly, the announcement of doom and gloom is not preached in many churches. But when God speaks of doom and gloom, we have a responsibility to say what he says. Revelation, unfortunately, is one of the least preached books in all of the Bible, and there's a reason for that. The idea of announcing that there is imminent danger in some people's thinking brings them back to Aesop's fables, the shepherd boy and the wolf. And if you remember that young shepherd boy in the story was so bored and so frustrated that to rile up the community, he would shout wolf. And of course, he was severely scolded each time. And then finally, when the real wolf came, no one believed him. My dad told me of a time 80 years ago, he was just a young man. It happened in 1938. Millions of people, as his own family did there in the state of Maine, would crowd around the radio and they would listen to the Mercury Theater of the Air. In October of 1938, millions were shocked as they heard the alert that there was an invasion from Mars. Listeners across America panicked. At first, the radio came on and Orson Welles interrupted it and said, we, we have news that we think a large meteor has hit the planet Earth. And then a few minutes later, live from the scene was a reporter who saw the Martians there in, in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, and with their ray guns, and people, especially all across the Northeast, panicked. They got in their cars, they went to their churches, they gathered their families together. The next day, of course, it was revealed that it was a big fraud. And of course, now the FCC prohibits such broadcasting that could create a catastrophe, though that didn't seem to stop John Ouellette some 25 years ago. The first Gulf War was emerging, and he signaled the emergency broadcast signal on the station that he was a part of, KSHE, there in St. Louis, Missouri, and he said, your attention, this is not a test. The United States of America is under a nuclear attack. And he played the fake warning, hoping to get Americans to think about the seriousness of a nuclear war. Of course, he wasn't too happy the next day. Millions of people, when you speak of coming doom, they think it's a fable. They think it's a hoax. They think that sometimes pastors preach on it to get the ratings up, to fill the church seats. Are you serious? You really believe this stuff, pastor? Every single word of it. Of course, in Noah's day, when Noah preached a doom that was coming, no one listened to him. No one took him seriously. Most thought it to be fiction. How do I know that? Because Jesus tells us that. In Luke 17, 27, Jesus said they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, just doing the things you did every day. You had meals, you sent your daughters off to be married, you built your homes, as the parallel text says. 
until the day, the very day, Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. This world, for many, it will be too late when they see that what we are studying in the Revelation is absolute truth. Now, the Bible is clear that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the catching up of the church, and then a seven-year period that's described in Revelation 6 through 18 will begin to unfold upon the planet like the world has never, ever imagined. And if you think I am exaggerating, Christ, who is God incarnate, said, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And since Jesus is God in a body, he cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. He's not like a man that he would ever lie. He tells us by his own divine insight that if you took, I suppose, all of the tornadoes, all of the epidemics, all of the crises, all of the 9-11s, all of the hurricanes, all of the tsunamis, all of the holocausts, he said that those things don't even begin to compare to what is out in front of us in human history. Now, when we began chapter 6, it was a major turning point in the Revelation. It was a watershed of sorts because God is beginning to unfold His wrath. And when we come here to the 15th chapter, this is the only chapter I'm preaching in one sermon. Many chapters I've given six, seven, eight sermons on. And most of the chapters that will follow, there'll be three, four, five, six sermons in some of the chapters. At least that's what I think at this point. But this is the shortest chapter in all the Revelation that needs to be handled as a unit, and so we'll do that today. Revelation 15, beginning now in verse 1. Follow along, if you would, in your Bibles. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things, I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, for our own edification, and especially for those who are new with us here for the first time, let me draw you into the broad and then the immediate context. This is one of the few books in the Bible where God puts the outline in the book and how critical it is that he would do this for the revelation because it is a very much misunderstood book. But if we would look at the outline, it would clear up a lot of the ambiguity. Revelation 119, John is commanded to write the things which he has seen. That's chapter 1. That's the past. 
Then he is told to write the things which are. That's the present time in his day. That's chapters 2 and 3, seven real churches that are going to receive this letter. And then he is told to write the things which will take place after these things. That's the future. And so beginning in chapter 4, all the way through the 22nd chapter, we have a picture of future things, the things which will take place after these things. So beginning in chapters 4 and 5, the church has been transported to heaven. We saw that there is an open door in heaven, and there are 24 elders representative of the body of Christ. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. It is a New Testament entity. And so the rapture has taken place. The church is being evaluated, and we will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, there is a number of throne room uh, visions in the Bible, Ezekiel, Zechariah, so forth. Um, but there are a few that are very parallel, which I've already noted for you. Isaiah has one, Daniel has one, and John has one in the Revelation. And while they are very similar, there's one distinct difference. The elders, that is the church, are not present in the vision that Isaiah and Daniel have, one, because the church did not yet exist. But here they are in the throne room of God. The church that began on the day of Pentecost is removed while God kicks back in with his plan for the nation of Israel. It's a prophecy. The whole schematic is found in Daniel 9. If you did not listen to those four messages on Daniel 9, that might be helpful to you in your study of the Revelation. And so the church has been captured and brought into heaven, and you never see the church mentioned again after chapter 3 until you come to Revelation 19, 14, when we come back with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 6, things change very fast, and things get dark quite quickly. I told you it's critical to understand the structure of the Revelation, or it becomes somewhat confusing to you. And we saw that there are three series of sevens in which the judgment of God is unfolded on the earth. The first seven are the seven-sealed scroll, as this chart pictures for you. The first four horses, the white, the red, the black, the ashen horse, we studied sermon on each of those, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then we studied the martyrs, those who are being slaughtered during this time because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. Then we saw the first of all the cosmic changes that are going to take place. And then as similar in all of these series of structures, between six and seven, seals, trumpets, or bowls, there is a pause in the narrative to go back and tell us what has been taking place or to give us a preview of important things that are going to happen. And so between seal number six and seal number seven, we saw the conversion of 144,000 Jewish people. They are preaching the gospel. How do I know? Because when we have divine commentary on them in chapter 14, one thing they are commended for, they obey and follow Jesus. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. If you are not fishing for men, I don't care what you may be doing, how you may serve, how many Bible studies you may lead, if you are not fishing for men, just write it across your mind, you are not following Christ. 
We are to fish for men as a way of life. As you go, literally, make converts, not do discipleship. That has been a verse that has been abused for nearly five decades where someone said the thrust of Matthew 28 is do discipleship. No, it is not. It is to make disciples, and contextually, when you put all five great commissions together in even the immediate context, it's make converts, not now just of the house of Israel, but he broadens, he greatens the commission to all nations. And you do with new believers what you're supposed to do. You're baptizing them. And you are teaching them. All happens through the local church. So these 144,000, because of their preaching ministry, we see an untold number of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that are converted to Jesus. Then, of course, with the opening of the seventh seal is seven trumpets. And so as you can see here, seven trumpets. And once again, between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, there's a space of time in the narrative. Not time in terms of action, but time in terms of the narrative. Once again, he goes back. He tells us some things that have been happening, but he's also previewing for us some events that are going to take place during the rest of the seven-year period. There's a trigger that brings about the first trumpet. It's called the abomination of desolation. And when that act happens, the first trumpet is sounded. And when it is sounded, the Bible says there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. People, unlike in the seals where they can see them just one at a time, when the first trumpet is blown, they can see all seven trumpets. And like in the seventh seal, and the seventh trumpet are the seven bowls. And so they can see all the way to the end what God is going to bring, and it just takes their breath away. They're just moved. They're stunned. Unlike this chapter and other chapters that are filled with praise and music, silence for 30 minutes. Now, the seventh trumpet, if you remember, was introduced in Revelation eleven fifteen. And when it is sounded, it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And you would think that the book should end there, but it doesn't. Then he goes on in this parenthetical section found in chapters 11 through 14, and he gives us further narrative of what has been taking place. He's reviewing and he is previewing. So if you remember in chapter 10, we had the angel in the little book. In chapter 11, the two witnesses, the seventh trumpet is sounded, but you don't see its effect until you come to Revelation 16, 1, when the first bowl that is in the seventh trumpet begins to unfold. And so he again introduces us in chapters 12, 13, and 14 to seven critical personages that are key players during this time called the time of Daniel's trouble called the Great Tribulation, called the time of Jacob's trouble. So now here's a new diagram. And remember, these things follow chronologically. Occasionally you get people who say, well, this has already taken place. It's all history. We said that that was the preterist point of view. And it's very popular amongst amillennialists and Calvinism today, the Church of England, Church of Scotland, Church of Ireland, and today in the Reformed community. But it is just wrong. It is bad theology. 
It is applying a different principle of interpretation to prophetic literature than what God models for us in the Word of God. And then you get some people who are very sloppy, and they say, well, they just all happen at once. All the seals, all the trumpets, all the bowls, they just happen at once. No, it's very clear that they happen in successive order. And so here we have the seven bowls of wrath. The first bowl we'll study is a bowl filled with sores. The second bowl, a bowl where the oceans are turned to blood. The third bowl, all the fresh water sources are filled with blood. The fourth bowl, men are scorched by the sun. The fifth bowl, incredible darkness. The sixth bowl, the Euphrates River is dried up, and it will usher in the battle of Armageddon. And then once again, between six and seven, there's a brief space of time. Here are just a few verses, not some chapters. And then he resumes with the seventh bowl. So the seventh trumpet opens up the six bowls of wrath, and then after the sixth bowl, there is a brief interlude. And the fact that these are successive, the sealed trumpet and bowl judgments, and don't happen simultaneously, are clear from the results. For instance, when the fourth seal is let go, only one-fourth of the world is affected. When the third trumpet is sounded, one-third of the world is affected. And when the bowl judgments are brought about, the entire planet is affected. So God is, like Jesus said, like a woman in labor. Remember Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4, all the way through verse 15, is describing the first half of the tribulation period. The, the, uh, the, the calamities, the wars, the famines, we've had that throughout history. But he's describing the first three and a half years. And like a woman in labor, it gets progressively closer in terms of the labor pains and more intense. The middle trigger point is Matthew 24, 15. It's the middle trigger point in Daniel's prophecy in the ninth chapter, the abomination of desolation. And that begins the second half with the trumpets. And by the time you get to the bulls, again, they're getting closer and closer, harder and harder. And when we come to the bull judgments, very, very quick in a short period of time. Now, here's an overview again of the big picture. The next event is the rapture, and before the 70th week starts is a brief period of time, maybe hours, maybe days, we're not told, and then a peace treaty, so to speak, some kind of covenant is made by the Antichrist with the people of Israel. In the first half of the tribulation, Israel is protected, and the second half, they are persecuted. While the tribulation is unfolding on the earth, the Bema seat, every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul tells us. This is a judgment not for unbelievers, but for Christians. He will look at each and everything that we've done as born-again believers. And the primary point of evaluation the New Testament reveals is how we have served Him when we're scattered and how we have served Him when we are gathered as a local assembly. And of course, after we are evaluated, we'll sit down with the Lord and we'll see the marriage supper of the Lamb. The first half is called tribulation, but in Revelation 6, it's also called great tribulation. Well, that's great tribulation. The second half is great, great tribulation because it really gets bad in the second half. It will culminate with the second coming of the Lord Jesus to the earth where he will literally rule and reign for a thousand years. Now, you're on millennialists. They just have one big event. They say all of Revelation is history. The next event is Jesus comes back and we all go to heaven. No, 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 no. That is bad theology 
It came out of Roman Catholicism. John Calvin adopted it, and it fed anti-Semitism, as I demonstrated to you, even with some of the anti-Semitic statements that Calvin and Luther and Augustine made. So, back here to the bowl slides once again. Uh, The seventh trumpet is open, the six bowls unfold, and again, this space of time. Now, this is important because this is a stylistic method that the Spirit of God used who inspired every single word of Scripture. And he does it not just in the Revelation, but throughout the whole of Scripture. This idea of reviewing and previewing. And if you read whole books of the Bible, you begin to see that. Even in the opening chapters in Genesis 1, God describes the creation of the world. But then in chapter 2, he reviews and he gives the details of how it unfolded, especially as it related to Adam and Eve. And so the Holy Spirit, one of his methods of teaching is reviewing and previewing. Now, sometimes people get bored, they yawn. Why are you going through this again, Pastor? I know this stuff. I've seen some of these charts before. That's a bad attitude if you have it. You should go home and confess it to the Lord and ask him to forgive you. Because God's writers throughout the Bible do this, and repetition is one of the best teachers, not to mention it would really say that you're out of touch with the lost world. Because you see, when you are engaged in bringing people to the kingdom, then you realize that there's new Christians. And we've got some people today who just last week received Christ, and they're hearing some of this for the first time. And you see, when we get out of touch and we just get in our own little clusters of Bible study and we don't share our faith anymore and we're not engaged in reaching the lost world, then we just say, feed me, pastor, teach me, pastor, but don't tell me something I already know. So the Spirit of God gives us a method of teaching and you see it even all the way through the New Testament epistles. So chapter 15 is not part of this um, parenthetical section. It goes with chapter 16. It's glued. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. Chapter 15 is the introduction. It's the countdown, like we're on the uh, launching pad and they're counting down. In chapter 16, God begins to roll out the bowls that brings about the battle of Armageddon. Now, Notice here in chapter 15, there is a new vision that is given, and there are three dimensions to this vision that he will underscore there in your note-taking outline. First, he reminds us that this is a vision of judgment, a vision of judgment. We learn that beginning now in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. So this verse opens, I saw another sign in heaven. This is the third of three signs that John sees in heaven. The first, if you remember, we found in chapter 12, it concerned the nation Israel. The second one was also found in chapter 12, and it concerned the dragon who's identified as Satan and that great army of demons that are swept down to the earth during this time frame. But now we come to the third sign, and John immediately tells us it's a sign in heaven. 
And he specifically tells us what it is, seven angels who had the seven plagues. Now, he uses three words in this verse to describe the nature of these plagues. And as you read the two chapters, you discover that the word plague and bowl, or some of your translations say vile, is used interchangeably. All right. So when he's talking about the plagues, he's talking about the seven bowls of wrath. And you see that when you read the two chapters. You might want to circle these words first. He refers to this sign as great. Why? Because it's awesome in power. Contained in this sign is going to make your spine tingle next time. I mean, it's incredible. Second, this sign is called marvelous. Why would you call this expression of wrath marvelous? Because as we will see, the saints of God are going to be vindicated. These people who have been slaughtered and marked and made fun of and beheaded are going to be vindicated as real servants of God. And that's marvelous. And third, he refers to this sign as the last of seven plagues because he tells us that in them the wrath of God is finished. When these last seven bulls are executed on the earth, this is the end of the wrath of God on the earth, and it will usher in the second coming of the Lord Jesus. So this is a promise that God is making, and it says the wrath of God is completed. Now, that's an important word, completed. It's a term that was used in a lot of different ways in the first century, really in everyday life. A servant would say, I have completed the work you've given me to do. He would say that to his employer or to his master if he was a slave. It meant he had finished what he had been asked to do. The Lord Jesus uses this same word, teleo, in his high priestly prayer. I glorified you by completing the work that you gave me to do. When he said that, he had finished the work. He had fulfilled the laws, commands, and the prophecies concerning him. He had completed it. The most common expression, however, of this verb teleo was used in the first century by merchants, and it was used of someone who had paid a bill. If you go to Israel, one museum you can visit is the Rockefeller Museum. The Rockefellers built an incredible place there. We haven't been there in our last few trips, but I think we should go again. And on it, in that museum, is a... uh, several pieces of papyri with lists of names. And when the tax was paid, these papyri that were discovered in 1961, they're in the city of Jerusalem, they wrote this verb, teleo. It's the very verb that Jesus shouts from the cross when he says, tetelestai. It's the same verb, just in a different form. It means literally, it is finished. It's completed. All the wrath that you deserve, Christ has completed on your behalf forever and ever and ever. He is paid in full. And that's important. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, understand that the Lord Jesus paid in full the wrath that you and I deserve, completed it, and you can add absolutely nothing to it. The Net Bible, interestingly, renders the Greek this way. They paraphrase a little bit, but it's a decent translation. Some of my friends at Dallas Seminary put it together some years back. Then I saw another great and astounding sign in heaven, seven angels who have seven final plagues. They are final because in them God's anger is completed. 
By the way, let me say parenthetically that God never ever uses this verb teleo in reference to his eternal wrath because the eternal wrath of God will never burn out. And unless you embrace the infinite Son, who in a finite period of time bore your wrath, and you as a finite person will spend an infinite amount of time paying for your own sin in an awful place God doesn't want any of us to go to. So during this seven-year period, known as the Great Tribulation, these last seven bowls represent a turning point. It's a prophetic pivot of sorts, because what is going to happen at the end of it is Jesus is going to come back, and the promises that he made to Israel and to the church will be fulfilled. He will literally rule and reign. What we've been praying for, for, for a couple of thousand years, Lord, your will be done on earth, literally, as it's being done in heaven. That's a prayer for the coming kingdom, among other things. So we're introduced to this third sign consisting of seven angels who had the seven plagues that are filled with the wrath of God. We're told in verse 2, and I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. Now, if you remember, we were introduced to this sea of glass back in chapter 4. Let me dust off your minds with chapter 4, verse 6. We're told, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. It's a description of the throne of God the Father, if you remember. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. So this is another place where I suppose human vocabulary is not adequate. And he's describing this shimmering, beautiful, magnificent sea of glass. And it's magnificent. It's like crystal. If you remember, I noted for you back there in chapter 4 that every good architect has a way of doing that, doesn't he? If he's building really a magnificent building, he'll often put a big reflecting pond out in front of it to capture the beauty of the building and even to light it up at night. Well, Moses once had a vision of the throne of God in Exodus 24, and he described it, note, as a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Ezekiel is given a glimpse of the throne, and he says it's something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal. So this is not some small reflecting pond. It is a sea of glass, and it's magnificent. And it's going to take our breath away, I'm sure. But notice here in verse 2, John adds another description to the sea of glass that we don't find in chapter 4. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, you know that fire is often associated in the Bible with God's righteous judgment. In Hebrews 10.27, it refers there to the terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Likewise, in one of the God is verses in the Bible, in Hebrews 12, 29, it says, God is a consuming fire. So God's judgment, the worst this world has ever seen, is about to unfold from this place, a sea of glass mixed with fire. And it is a terrifying description of the righteousness of God Almighty. Again, we read, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name. 
Now, you know who those are by now. Those are the tribulation saints because those are the only people who during this period of time will meet these three specific issues. Now, you know the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So let's just review for a moment what is meant by these three descriptions. He mentions here first the beast. Who's the beast in one word? Antichrist. Antichrist. The beast is the Antichrist. Now, the dragon is Satan. The beast is Antichrist. Uh, that's the principal designation. Now, there is a second beast who's also in reference to the false prophet, but most all the references to the beast is the Antichrist. Then, if you will notice here, he mentions his image, and we were introduced to that image back in chapter 13. Remember the false prophet and what he did. We're told in Revelation uh, 13, verse 14, and he, the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. And then this deceiver, we're told in the next verse, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause as many as who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So there in the city of Jerusalem, the Antichrist in a third temple yet to be built. Some of you went with me to the Temple Institute in our last trip. We saw all of the blueprints for the third temple. All the architectural drawings are completed. Every stitch of furniture has been made with the exception of the Ark of the Covenant because there are credible Jewish Orthodox rabbis who say they know precisely where that Ark is located. Now, there's one in heaven, but there's one on the earth, and they said that they've seen it, and that's why they haven't reproduced the ark. The only thing that, and they have all the temple garments made out there in the fields outside of Jerusalem. Many of you have followed on Fox News. You have these uh, Levitical priests who are actually practicing the sacrificial, sacrificial system. They are going to build another temple, and it has to be built by the midpoint of this seven-year period because that's when the Antichrist is going to go in there, and he's going to do something that's going to trigger in every Jewish person's mind that he is not the Jewish Messiah they thought, that he is a false Messiah, that he is an anti-Messiah, an Antichrist, because he would never do anything that would contradict God's revealed word. And that's what Moses reminded people of throughout the Torah, that if some prophet or teacher comes along, because one office of Messiah is that he would be a prophet, prophet, priest, and king. The three offices contain only in one person, Jesus, but they will know he's a false prophet because he's going to do something that is contrary to what God had revealed. When that false prophet makes an image of the Antichrist speak, he is going to engage in idolatry. And every Jew will know at that point, it's impossible that this man could be God's man. Again, they're victorious in three realms, over the beast, the Antichrist, over the image, they don't worship it, and also over the number of his name. Remember the number of his name, Revelation 13, verse 18, here is wisdom, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. We talk, spoke a little bit about gematria, that in a number of languages, including Hebrew and Greek, every single letter has a numerical equivalent. 
And the Bible teaches that when you take the name of the Antichrist, whoever he is, and you sum up his name, it will add up to 666. And these people, these tribulation saints, refuse to follow the Antichrist. They refuse to worship at an image, and they refuse to take the number of the beast, 666, on their right hand or on their forehead. Fast forward right out in the margin next to verse 2, Revelation 20, verse 4. Let me read it to you. I think if I... I've not checked it, but I think it's the longest verse in all the Revelation. Then I saw, so I didn't make a slide for it. It was too long to fit on a slide. Then I saw that you could read. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast, there it is, or his image, there it is, and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their right hand, those three, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they're alive in heaven. Their bodies are, of course, yet to be resurrected. So putting these three reasons together, let me read verse 2 again. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding hearts of God. Now, from the world's perspective, these people are losers. They had their heads cut off. But from heaven's perspective, they are victorious. And here they are in heaven. They are with hearts of God that God the Father has given to them. They're holding hearts of God that God the Father has given to them. And again, it's in the context of a sea of glass. God's boiling anger, as we'll see in just a moment, is ready to let go. But these people are not fearful. They're not feigning. They are standing victorious. Really, the only people who need to fear are the unbelieving multitudes on the earth. Jesus said it this way, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy body and soul in hell. And so these victorious saints in heaven are singing the praise of God. Now, that's the vision of judgment. Now the vision shifts, and it gives us a second dimension of this vision that John has given, where we see a vision of jubilation, a vision of jubilation. We read now in verse 3, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. You say, Pastor, what is the song of Moses? Is, is that in the top 40? You better believe it. It's been in the top 40 for 3,500 years. Right out in the margin next to that verse, Exodus 15. You can go home and read the whole chapter, but let me just give you a sampling from the song of Moses. The context was the time that the Israelites were brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and on the other side of the Red Sea, when all of Pharaoh's army is drowned, they sing the song of Moses. The Lord is my strength in song. Notice all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, telling you in the preface of the New American Standard that this is the special covenant name of God, Yahweh. The Lord is my strength in song, 
and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. Listen, this song is stamped in the mind of every practicing Jew. In the Sabbat meal that we went to, and one of the things that we incorporated last time is everyone on the trip goes to a Sabbath meal in the home of an Orthodox Jew. In the home that we were in, we sang, because everyone also spoke English, we sang a portion of the Song of Moses. They've been singing it for 3,500 years. I called my rabbi friend this week, and I said, let me ask you a question. I said, do do you sing this a lot? He said, it's actually incorporated on every Sabbath worship, and it's sung, he said, on almost every devotional that Jewish people sing every single day. And there are many contemporary songs and expressions where these words have been put to music. By the way, only redeemed people can sing a song of praise. Only their hearts can really express gratitude for what God has done. And of course, in Deuteronomy 18, that great chapter, Moses speaks of the prophet who is coming. Remember on that occasion in John's gospel, they asked Jesus, are you the prophet? In Acts 2, Peter says, he is the prophet. Jesus filled three offices, prophet, priest, and king. The Messiah would fill. And so in Deuteronomy 18, Moses gives the coming Messiah as the coming prophet, and the Antichrist becomes a type of a false prophet, of a false person. Now, it's not by accident that Moses in that song, it is sung as a result of the great deliverance God brought them out of. If you remember in those 10 plagues, Many of the plagues representing Egyptian gods that they worshipped. They had a frog god, so God sent frogs and so on. And, but the tenth plague was the plague where God averted it by, on his people by slaughtering a lamb. And they put the blood on the doorposts. And when the destructive angel, and it was an angel, that's not fiction, came through... God bypassed, he passed over anyone who in faith applied the blood. And the firstborn in that home, whether you were a 100 years old and firstborn or three days old, you were passed over male and female alike. Now go back to the previous slide. They sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. They sang them both. And how appropriate, because there's great parallels between those two songs, as this next chart shows you. The Song of Moses, again, Exodus 15. The Song of the Lamb, Revelation 15. One is sung at the sea. The other is sung at the crystal sea. The first represents the triumph over Egypt. The second, the triumph over the Antichrist. The first, God is bringing his people out. And the second song, God is bringing them into heaven. The first song recorded in all the Bible is found in Exodus 15. The last song, the song of the Lamb, 
recorded in the Bible is found here in Revelation 15. So it's appropriate that God's people would sing this in heaven because these are people who triumphed over the beast, his image, and over his number. And while the words are not the same, the two songs are in perfect harmony with one another. In Moses' day, they recounted the great redemption that God brought them out through the blood of the Lamb. And in this day, they will once again sing of the great redemption in which God brought us out by what was pictured in the Old Testament by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Look again at verse 3. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and they sang in the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Now, please notice what they're really singing here. They're singing, How great thou art. When they say, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, the Almighty. They're singing, in essence, how good you are. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. And they're singing, how glorious you are. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? It's a rhetorical question. For you alone are holy. Now listen to them sing. There's no recounting of their suffering. No recounting of their beheading. No account, recounting of the horror that they knew as tribulation saints. Not one word of complaint. They're singing about Jesus. In fact, every pronoun has to do with God. Look at verses 3 and 4 together. Great and marvelous are your works. Circle that. Righteous and true are your ways. Circle that word, your. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. Not one thread of narcissism, no self-centeredness, and this is all, it's all about the Lord. Your, your, you, your, you, you, your. They are focused on the living God. And that's what makes heaven so marvelous. It's not about us. It's about Him. And you will notice if you're using the New American Standard, the typeset changes to all caps because in this instance, it's an Old Testament reference. Notice, for all the nations will, future tense, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, you might want to put out in the margin Psalm 86 and Isaiah 66. Psalm 86 and Isaiah 66, because that's where these references come from. And they are prophecies of something that has never happened. I have told you that there are some dear brothers like John Piper and others who say, the book of Revelation, with the exception of chapter 19, is all history. Oh, my, please. That is a terrible thing to say. But you see, they think God's done with the Jewish persons, that the Jew has no relevance anymore in the plans and purposes of God. Now, I love Piper, and I thank God he preaches the gospel. But it is a terrible thing to discredit the Jewish people in this new replacement theology that is surfacing like never before in America. And it's going to lead to an anti-Semitism. No one has that intention, but that's the fruit of this kind of thinking. When the church no longer respects the people of Israel and the plans and purposes that God has for them in bringing about the second coming of Jesus from heaven. 
And so if you go back to these Old Testament passages, God is speaking of a future time when all the nations will come to Jerusalem and worship. Is he blowing smoke? Not at all. Every single prophecy for the first coming was literally fulfilled, and so it will be for the second coming. That has never happened. And so to take the revelation and say it all happened before 70 AD is to abuse the plain teaching of the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 2, Micah chapter 4, Zechariah 14, speaks of this time when the nations will gather nations from every tribe, tongue, and people who are true and genuine believers, and they will worship there in Jerusalem. Now, that's the vision of jubilation. There's a vision of judgment. There's a vision of jubilation. But there's a third dimension to this vision that he is given here that he sees in heaven. And it concerns a vision of justice, a vision of justice. We now read beginning in verse 5. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. Now, we've already seen in chapters 5 and 6, if you remember, there's the golden altar and there's the brazen altar that are in heaven and not by accident because the temple furniture on earth actually exists in heaven. Remember, when Moses came down from that mountain, he not only had the Ten Commandments, so to speak, he had a set of blueprints. God had given him a vision of how to build the tabernacle. Some of you were with me on one trip, and we were down in the desert, and I didn't even know it was there, but we stumbled upon some Messianic Jewish believers who had rebuilt the, ta- uh, the, the tabernacle, that tent structure. And I want to tell you, every thread, every color, every stick of furniture is symbolic, as will the later temple that they built be and was is symbolic of what Messiah has done and will do. And so God said in Exodus 25, 40, which the writer of the Hebrews quotes, Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. And God warned him, see that you make all things according to the pattern, tupos, type, that you were shown on the mountain. Now you will hear pastors sometimes speak of a type, and that may be a new word for you, but it's an important word. It's a word that is rendered here as pattern. A type is an Old Testament picture of a future reality. So, for instance, a type of Christ we've already discussed this morning was in the Passover where the blood was put on the doorpost and God passed over, just like the sinless blood of Christ is pictured in that spotless Passover lamb is your protection, and God will pass over you in wrath if you've applied it to your heart by faith. And so if you know something about the book of Hebrews, you will know that its theme concerns Jewish Christians because they were Jews and yet confessing Jesus, Yeshua is Lord, and then persecution. And so to escape some of the persecution, some of the Jewish Christians went back to the externals and they were involved in temple worship. Why were they involved in that? Because you didn't want people to boycott your business. You didn't want people to rag on your wife and your kids. So you went back and you were externally Jewish. And the writer of the Hebrews said, this is an awful thing that you're doing. Number one, the first tabernacle and the temple that would follow, one and two, 
We're just a copy of a real tabernacle that exists in heaven. And so you are worshiping in a copy when the reality is in heaven. You are listening to an Old Testament high priest when the real high priest is the Lord Jesus, who's making continual intercession for you in heaven. You are living on the blueprint when the real building is in heaven. And so we studied, if you remember, in Revelation eleven nineteen. then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. Once again, we read here in chapter 15, after these things, I looked in the temple in the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. Now, if you've read the first five books of the Bible, you will remember that the term the testimony is a reference to what we call the Ten Commandments. And so repeatedly, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments is often referred to as the testimony. And so God said in Exodus 25, 16, you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. Because it, it was a testimony. The Ten Commandments are an expression of who God is and all that He is. And that's why God can say to unbelievers that they are fully accountable to Him, even people who've never heard the name of Jesus. Why? Because the law of God is written in their hearts. And so Paul says in Romans 2.15, Gentiles who don't even have a Bible have the law of God written in their hearts. Their conscience either testifying, affirming, or accusing them of right and wrong. And of course, the biblical principle is light responded to brings more light. And so a man can't say, well, I didn't have a chance. I never heard the name of Jesus. God doesn't send a man to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whom he's never heard. He sends him to hell because he's rejected the broadest of all revelations. And when a man rejects the revelation of God in creation and conscience, he has condemned himself. So in heaven, there is a testimony in an actual Ark of the Covenant. It's powerful. And it's in a place called Naos, which is a section of the temple. You know it. It's called the Holy of Holies. Look now at verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues, came out of the naos, the holy of holies, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Now notice these seven angels are dressed in linen. Linen was the garment that the high priest wore. It's the garment that the Lord Jesus wears. And these angels are in linen that is described as clean and bright. These are holy angels. And they also have golden sashes because, again, they are representatives of the Lord God. And the Lord Jesus in chapter 1 has this golden sash. But they're representing him. They're on his team, so they're wearing his uniform. And they're about to execute judgment for him. Why? Because John 5.22 says the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Now, if you were here last week, we saw that you will meet God. You will either meet him as your great redeemer or you will meet him as the grim reaper, but you will meet him. And so these seven angels have the seven plagues, which we will see next time are the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so they emerge out of the Holy of Holies, representing the very place where the ten commandments, the testimony there in the Ark of the Covenant are located. And so as Christ's representatives, they are going to deal with a world that has mocked God's law. Listen, we've seen an awful thing in the last few weeks. 
And ever before this dear judge came out and accusations were made against him, and I'm not here to defend him one way or the other, they said, we don't want him. Within 30 minutes, we don't want him. Why? Because there's a movement of people in America who think it is a woman's right to kill an innocent baby in a womb. There are people in America because as heterosexual immoral people, they want to embrace along with gay people the LGBTQ rights because they spurn and hate the law of God They will hate anyone who stands for truth, Christian or non-Christian. And so these angels are going to defend the very law that is there in that sacred holy place in heaven called the Ark of the Covenant. Moses said it long ago, he, God, will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And if what the martyred saints sang here in verse 3 is correct, and it is, that God is righteous and true, then he will punish sin. And if God does not punish sin, he would topple from his throne of holiness. King David had it in Psalm 19. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Abraham rightly said in discussing God's wrath over Sodom, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? Now look at their argument here in verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. In chapter 16, we'll reveal the content of those bowls. But the word here um, for full of the wrath of God, the word for full is a specialized Greek word that means full to the very brim. When I go to the... (laughs) I go to Dunkin' Donuts every Sunday morning, about 6.05, I pull through there, and they already they always know it's me. I said, now when you fill that coffee, would you fill it to the rim? Because sometimes, you know, they leave about this much empty. I said, fill it to the rim, and they, they, they're ready for me. But I'm telling you, this is full to the brim. One more drop, and it would spill over. That's the essence of the word that God uses here. God has been patient. His long-suffering. But now his wrath is filled to the brim. And he is going to pour these bowls out. The writer of the Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now look at verse 8. It concludes the chapter with a powerful statement. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, this verse describes for us a transformation of God's heavenly temple into an environment, the Scripture says here, that is filled with smoke and no one can come in. It's accessible only to God. If you were here last time, we saw the smoke represents the Shekinah of God. And here... It is filling the temple as as if God were saying, stay out, I'm busy, no one can interrupt me, I'm going to complete my judgment on the world. No one can enter the temple at that point. Why? Because 
God is finished with man's nonsense. The temple is impassable because it has now become impossible for someone to repent. And God is going to lay His wrath on the world like we've never yet seen in the Revelation. And when this happens, it will be forever too late for anyone to believe. Now, how are we going to apply this text of Scripture? There are several applications I want to make this morning. Number one, if you've been saved, if we've been saved, then we must give praise and thanks to God. We must give praise and thanks to God. We just studied how in heaven... These people are not patting themselves on the back. They are singing praises to God for how good He is. And listen, part of what makes heaven heaven is that you completely forget about yourself and we remember the living God. And the same, I suppose, can be true. Now, these people are perfectly spirit-filled. They are redeemed. They're still awaiting their resurrection bodies. They have a temporary body, but still they are spirit-filled. And when you're spirit-filled, as much as you can be, you really begin to forget yourself when you focus on God. And God wants our singing to be about Him. You know, there's a lot of people who sing because they're seeking a feeling. It's about them. It's not about God. And if you come here and you sing like a statue, then you're way off key. I'm not talking about the quality of your voice. Groan it out. Even if you're way off key and you've had half your larynx torn out, sing! I want to hear it. But if you're like a statue, you're way off key. Listen, God gives very nearly as many commands to sing corporately as He does to pray corporately. And that's important. Now, some of you are live streaming today, and I, and I read the live stream. I can't always tell when, you know, we got a lot of people on Facebook around the world sometimes exactly where they are unless they say some notation. If you're live streaming, tell us what country you're from, what state you're in. But through the church website, we can see every city and every state and where people, what countries they're live streaming from. And sometimes I get a little concerned when I see so many people from Buford and Bluffton and Hilton Head especially the second hour. Now, I understand I've got people who live stream the first hour because they're pastors and teach the Word of God. And they're hungry. And they listen the first hour, and then they go to their local church the second hour. Great. But I fear that there are some who are live streaming who are live streaming because they didn't feel like getting up and coming here. Not because they have sick kids. Not because they're sick. They just didn't feel like coming. And when you don't feel like coming, it's different when you're on one of our satellite campuses where you are live streaming corporately. You are able to do what God tells you to do. You are able to corporately sing praises to God. But some of us don't do that. Not even when we do come. That's an obedience issue. Listen to what Ephesians 5, 19, it tells us we're obeying when we're singing, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And not only are you obeying when you sing corporately, you are implanting truth into your hearts. 
Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with grace in your hearts to God. Paul lays out the command to let God's word dwell richly within you. And there are two dimensions. One is teaching. That's why you need a Bible when you come here. Look, I'm glad for the electronics. And last night I started in Matthew and I woke up and I was in Romans. I just let it play it all night in my headset. And I'm glad for the electronics. But you need a paper copy. I've told you about six times already some things you should write in the margin. And not to mention the electronic copy won't make you proficient in the Word of God and finding your way around it. And don't say you're an old fogey because I had an electronic Bible before a lot of you were born. 1985, okay? But one of the dimensions that God uses to let the Word richly dwell within you is teaching, but also singing. Matt had us sing a few weeks ago a a powerful hymn, In Christ Alone. And we went home with a whole theology of the cross. I told you a few weeks ago, my, my daughter who's teaching children's choirs there in Texas, how one of the moms called her and said, I overheard my daughter after the door was shut and the lights were out singing the song that you taught them in choir. And many of you could testify that of your own children. That's why you should have those kids inquire. You're implanting good, rich theology. And we don't take cheap hymns. We look carefully. We analyze them. I was here at the youth movement. Some outside group came in talking about the reckless love of God. No such thing. Where's that theology come from? Listen, God wants you to sing corporately because you are impregnating into your soul biblical truth, speaking to one another, admonishing one another. You are not only obeying and implanting, you are building the body of Christ. You are helping. Look, when you come and you sing, my heart is encouraged. I hope yours is. I'm edified through the body of Christ who's singing corporately. My only regret is sometimes I have to change and get ready from the baptism and I miss some of the hymns. You're witnessing when you sing. Paul speaks of that. When an unbeliever comes in and they watch the people of God worship, in some places they will fall on their face and give themselves to God. You are giving a testimony to unbelievers who are present every week. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell all of his wondrous works, the psalmist said. In addition, when you sing corporately, you are experiencing. What are you experiencing? Among other things, the joy of the Lord. Because when you obey God, your heart will be full of joy. The psalmist said, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them sing for joy. On the flip side, James says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Listen, if you begin to sing consistently, there'll be more joy in your heart than you ever realized. Look, everyone gets a little depressed and there's different causes for depression. Like with Elijah, sometimes it's just physical exhaustion. And my wife will tell me the most spiritual thing you can do right now is get a good night's sleep. 
and it's all gone in the morning. But let me tell you, some of you deal with depression more than you need to, and the solution is not a pill, it's a song. To begin to incorporate in your lifestyle, not the music of the world, but godly music. It has a way of just lifting your soul up into heaven. It will strengthen you all as well for a trial. Remember Acts 16, Paul and Silas are brought to that place called Philippi by God Almighty, and we're told in Acts 16, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. Just like the saints in heaven, whose salvation is complete, such that they are perfectly filled with the Spirit. Here's Paul and Silas filled with the Spirit, and what are they doing? They're singing hymns of praise to God. Now imagine what it might have been like had they not been filled with the Spirit. Silas, you awake? Of course I am. How could I sleep in this filthy, smelly, rat-infested cell? Well, Paul... We're here because of you, buddy. You're the leader. Hey, don't get huffy with me. I got a headache. Why? Should I? Well, you got a headache. I got a migraine. Listen, Silas, I sold my tent company. I could have made a ton of money doing that, but I sold it to obey God, so don't you whine with me. And that jailer would have said, ah, two preachers. They don't really believe what they believe. But that's not what happened. Silas, you awake? Hallelujah, brother. I'm wide awake. How you feeling? I'm having victory in Jesus. Me too. We've suffered for the cause of Christ. We got stripes on our back to prove it. You're right, brother. Hey, we've been honored to suffer. Why don't we sing to the Lord? Why don't we sing... Every day is sweeter than the day before. No, I don't want to sing that. Let's sing about how great our God is in heaven above. Let's sing praises to him. And there they are, and the whole jail's listening. And what a testimony they had in the midst of a trial. And those people probably thought, these people really believe what they preach. When you sing corporately, and that's one of the reasons we gather here on the Lord's Day and why you should come if you're just sitting at home in bed drinking an iced tea. You are glorifying the living God, and in the process, you are obeying Him, you are implanting truth into your life, you are a witness to an unbelieving world, you are experiencing the joy of the Lord, and you are strengthening yourself for the trials that you will face. Second, this morning, let me make another application. If you've not been saved and you die lost, you will meet God in His wrath. Now, a lot of people do not really believe what I'm preaching. They just think that this is a bunch of hogwash. They don't think it really matters. And so I've been in many a funeral home with many an unbeliever. Oh, he is always, he's always in a better place. He's always in a better place. Some God-hater, some adulterer, he's always in a better place. I wish that were true. 
God warns us in Romans chapter 2, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see, this is what most people think. They think God's not going to intervene. All this hullabaloo that you evangelicals talk about, Jesus is coming back. You've been preaching that for 2,000 years. God's not coming back. God is just patient. He is forbearing. And in Romans 2, 5, God reminds us that every time a person continues to rebel against the light that God has given them because of your stubbornness in unrepentant heart, you're storing up, literally you are treasuring up. It's the same word that's used when Jesus tells us to store up treasure in heaven. You are treasuring up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of our righteous God. The truth is, is that the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Robert Ingersoll was a lawyer, a brilliant orator who lived in the mid-1800s. He was the son of a Presbyterian minister, a Presbyterian minister who ultimately began to preach for Charles Finney when he was not there. But sadly to say, his son was a reprobate. And people would go and listen to Ingersoll speak, and they would pay a dollar, which was a small fortune in that day. And they would listen to him mock God. And he would say, if there is a God in heaven who really cares, then strike me dead in 30 seconds. And he would begin to count down five, four, three, two. See, there's no God if I were God on that last second, I would have said, poof. And the only thing that would be left would be his watch. But God is not like that. But don't mistake the fact that he has not yet intervened, that he is not going to intervene. This morning here is a sea of glass mixed with fire. And there's coming a day when God is going to loose his bowls and those bowls of wrath will eventually turn into the eternal wrath of God forever and ever and ever. And God is not crying wolf. This is not the sensationalism of an Orson Welles. This is the word of God and we would do well to hear it. Father, Thank you today for what you've given us. Thank you for your word. You say it is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And how reminded we are of that every time we open it and study it. Now, Father, your son said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Father, we recognize that the evangelistic side of the Great Commission is virtually lost in our day. But while it may be lost in others, please, I pray, may it not be ever lost in me. Help me to be a good steward of the gospel. Help us all in this coming week to look for opportunities as you would give them. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here who has never met Christ. Thank you that he came into the world to save sinners. 
I pray that some dear soul within the sound of my voice would recognize that when he shouted it, it was finished, that it was paid in full. Thank you that he was not finished, but your wrath was finished in him. And you proved that when you raised him from the dead. Help some dear person today to believe what you've promised, that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Help them to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, help me and help everyone here to be more like the saints in heaven with hearts filled with song and praise that your word would be impregnated into our soul that you might demonstrate the joy of Jesus Christ in and through us. We ask it for his name and for his glory. Amen.